my days as an army chaplain, my soldiers called me Padre, and they asked me all kinds of questions about God, spirituality, religion, the Bible, relationships, and a host of other subjects that we will cover in this podcast. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take questions and I answer them with stories from our faith, stories from the Bible, and stories from the world we live in. My name is David Peters, and thanks for joining me. Today, the question that we're going to talk about relates to the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Who is Mary? Not necessarily who was Mary historically, but who is she today? And how do different kinds of Christians have a relationship with Mary? I want to start out by saying my relationship with Mary is complicated, just like my relationship with my earthly mother My relationship with Mary has been complicated over the years as I've gone from childhood to adulthood and now into middle age, and I've thought about Mary very differently over those years. Mary is very personal to me. What I believe about her, how I see her in the world today is very personal because of something that happened to me uh, now over 10 years ago relating to Mary. And I'll talk about that at the end of the broadcast. But where is Mary in the life of the church today? It doesn't, uh, we don't have to look very hard to find Christians in America and around the world venerating Mary. And those who venerate Mary uh, very publicly with either pictures or statues of Mary or icons of Mary very boldly and name churches after Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility, as you have in Lake Wobegon, the Catholic Church there, uh, generally are Roman Catholic Christians who are the largest group of Christians that, are, that can be recognized as one body in the world. And their, their veneration of Mary is very public. And those who venerate Mary very publicly Want you to make want us to make the distinction between worshiping something and venerating someone, worshiping someone and venerating someone. Worship is directed only at God in Christian tradition, and yet we venerate the saints, we venerate those who have gone before us. Many Protestant Christians don't have a problem with venerating the Bible and also other Christian heroes, so we're all venerating all sorts of things. Um, most most notably our own children, if we have them, or those that we love dearly, we venerate while they're here on this earth. And so after they die, that veneration goes on. So there's a difference between venerating someone and worshiping them. The Bible and Christian tradition is very clear to not worship other people, even though we sometimes use that word Uh, very loosely to describe how we treat someone. Uh, We worship pop stars. Um, And that's not used ironically. That's used the the way we talk about it. I absolutely worship and adore that guy. And so that difference between worship and venerate or worship and adore, adoration, is always a distinction made when we talk about Mary. I grew up in a very Protestant home and church and school, Protestant fundamentalism or Protestant evangelicalism or evangelicalism, however you say it, which 
had a very difficult relationship with Mary. So much of of that tradition is very Romophobic. Anything that looks Roman Catholic is often treated as very toxic to the Christian faith. And that's not always true in evangelical circles anymore. And it probably wasn't true when I was a kid, but that was where I came from. So coming uh, to see Mary in statues and pictures that Roman Catholics had made and sculpted and drawn was very strange for me. And I wondered, why do they worship Mary? But at the same time, while I was wondering, why do they worship Mary? And why are they so infatuated with Mary? Why are they building statues for her and churches for her and basilicas for her and all sorts of things that I saw as distracting people from the worship of God, distracting people from the life of Jesus or some other good things that people ought to do. And certainly I saw the, the, uh, the attention that was paid to Mary as distracting from the study of the Bible. Uh, that was one of the great Protestant critiques of Catholicism has always been how they have seem to not study the Bible as much as Protestants have. And that may be a fair uh, accusation in many ways, which has been cha- has changed over the years. If you spend any time with Roman Catholics, you'll find that they are studying the Bible in, in ways that um, will always be illuminating to Protestants. And, and I certainly have experienced that. So as a child and as a young man, and I saw that the way Mary was being, it seemed like worshipped in the Roman church, but little did I know, we were doing the same thing in Protestantism, in evangelical Protestantism, with something else. I would say the archetype of Mary in Protestantism is the nation state of Israel. And here's what I mean by that. I'm not trying to be too controversial. What I'm saying is the archetype of Mary, in other words, the presentation of Mary that you and I think about when we when I say the word Mary is usually a woman with a blue shawl over her head, over her shoulders. Maybe you see a little different version. Maybe you see a statue that's near your house, like across the street from my house is a statue of the Virgin Mary. It's a beautiful stone statue that our neighbors have. Uh, Perhaps that's what you think of when you hear Mary, but I'm going a little deeper. The archetype of Mary, the, the archetype of who gave us Jesus, because Christians all agree that Jesus is really special and whoever gave us Jesus deserves to be venerated, adored, treated with great respect, treated with great honor. In fact, whoever gave us Jesus can kind of do no wrong. And I think for uh, archetypically for evangelical Protestants, when the Reformation happened, the veneration and adoration that, that we had for Mary kind of morphed and changed into a veneration and adoration for the modern nation state of Israel. If you look at, um, there's a brilliant book by Deramade McCullough, and I eat and devour everything he writes because it's so good. If you haven't read his, his biography of Thomas Cramner, it's a real page turner. It's a, 
huge volume of biography. But but Dermaid McCullough is a deacon and historian in the Church of England. Uh, starts off his third chapter of his book about the Reformation. It's a pretty new book. It's called All Things Made New, The Reformation and Its Legacy. And he starts out with this scene. He says, let us contemplate Thomas Cramner, primate of all England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is in 1549, sitting on the altar, sitting on an altar to preside over the trial of Anabaptist heretics. Anabaptist heretics, of course, in England are those Protestants who have gone so far that they've rejected so many of the outward forms of the church that the Church of England has kept, but the Anabaptists have gone even further. They're not baptizing babies anymore. That's why they're called Anabaptists. They baptize again, basically grown-ups. They get baptized again. That's what they're called, why they're called Anabaptists. And they have a lot of other views about authority in the church and how the corrupt bishops should not be in charge of the church, but, but those that God has chosen. So they are a subversive group in England at the time, and they're being persecuted by the Protestant Church of England. Um, not only are Roman Catholics per- persecuted, but these sort of extreme evangelical Protestant Anabaptists are being persecuted. Uh, persecuted because they have chosen to to worship and live outside the Church of England, which is the established church. Anyway, there's Thomas Cramner, primate of all England, sitting on an altar. He's sitting on an altar to preside over the trial of an Anabaptist. The time is May 1549. The altar unceremoniously covered over to support the judge is that of the Lady Chapel in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I was there not long ago, about two weeks ago, and I didn't, wasn't able to see this altar in the Lady Chapel because the ushers ushered me out right after the worship service uh, unceremoniously as I tried to poke around towards the back of the cathedral, and they were like, get out. Anyway, there in the back is this Lady Chapel altar, and he puts his chair, his throne, on the altar as if to say... We don't do this Mary thing anymore the way we used to. Uh, There's a real break that's chronicled in this chapter with the medieval and ancient treatment and veneration of Mary by the reformers all over Europe. He writes in this chapter how at first, in the very first days of the Reformation, you could still really venerate Mary the way a Roman Catholic would in the Middle Ages. But as time went by, Mary became intrinsically linked with Roman Catholicism and the adoration of her. So by the time the Reformation is in full swing, you see an archbishop trampling on an altar of Our Lady in the course of defending his view of who Jesus was. And there's a witness there that's at the trial, a Thomas Stradling. He's a Welsh Catholic very scholarly and pious. He writes down his reactions on the occasion and says, because Cramner desecrated this altar, his punishment for blasphemy will be his own fiery death at the stake. It's like a prophecy about how Cramner ends up dying. But you can see how the seeds in the Reformation were planted to divorce the the veneration and adoration of Mary from the piety of the Protestant church. 
Now, in some quarters of of Protestantism, the veneration and adoration of Mary has come back. Uh, in the Episcopal Church that I'm part of, there is there are many Episcopal Christians, Episcopalian Christians, who uh, have a great devotion to Mary uh, to the level that you would see in a Roman Catholic setting or an Orthodox setting. Uh, and yet we still have many Episcopalian Christians who uh, would be a lot more like Baptists when it came to how Mary is viewed in the church, because this is something that gets shattered in the Reformation. And my argument is that the archetype of Mary, in other words, the, the where Jesus came from, the source of Jesus on this earth, the physical source of Jesus is Mary. That physical source of Jesus gets sublimated. I don't know if that's the right word psychologically in the archetypes of Mary and comes out on the other end as the nation state of modern Israel. Uh, Zionism is a movement that sweeps the world, uh, beginning with the work of Theodore Herzl. He is, of course, mentioned in the movie The Big Lebowski by uh, Walter Sopchak. You can check out that clip anytime. It's all over YouTube. But Zionism is a movement uh, driven by the Jewish people, but, but heavily supported by evangelical Christians in, in uh, Europe, but especially in Great Britain and in, in the United States. Uh, so the nationalist movement of establishing a nation state of Israel comes about because of a joint effort on some very, very uh, devout Jewish people and some very devout evangelical Christians that live in Great Britain and the United States. Theodore Herzl um, is very active at the end of the 19th century. Um, and, and throughout Theodore Herzl's life, he tries to win over the Roman Catholic Church by visiting the Pope. And yet the Roman Catholics are very hesitant to support the claim that, that Jewish people should have a right to live in their homeland, that they, the Jewish homeland, as defined as the historic land of Israel. The land of Israel is, of course, about the size of New Jersey. It's not a very big place in the grand scheme of things, but this is the land that evangelical Protestants say that land belongs to Jewish people. And the same thing that the Zionist Jews. Not all Jews are Zionists. Not all Jews supported the nation state of Israel. But things really uh, took went into full swing after World War II when the world reeled in horror at the realities of the Holocaust. And that recognition that where can these people go? Where can we establish a safe place for them? Becomes the nation of Israel. And so Zionism... Uh, was was then became a global movement that that a lot of people felt like it was a really good idea. Of course, Zionism and the modern nation state of Israel had ripple effects that we can see every day if you turn on the news, especially BBC or other news services that cover the violence that happens that is happening in that land. So in this um, podcast, I'm I'm not going to go into what's happening today. But this movement that happens in the Reformation starts to create biblical interpreters who start to interpret 
the Old Testament promises to Israel as being literal, that the literal promises to Israel in the Old Testament, that they will dwell in the land, that they will possess the land, start being interpreted as start being interpreted as literally coming true in their own lifetime. I am a descendant of a of a man who prophesied and predicted that his son would see this is my great grandfather that his son, my grandfather, would see the nation of Israel born in his lifetime, and he did. This is a movement that was very strong in the United States among a group of people called dispensationalists. They were a group of Christians, many of them former Presbyterians, but they were from all different denominations who interpreted the Old Testament prophecies about Israel as as being actual promises that Jewish people today could claim, uh, almost as legal documents to claim that area of land. Meanwhile, you have the fall of the Ottoman Empire in World War I and Great Britain occupying uh, the land of Israel. And so the Zionist movement after World War I really picks up steam till 1948 when it really the nation state is established. And I would encourage you to read some of the history of that um, that movement of Zionism. That, but for Zionists, Zionism for evangelical Protestants becomes the way that, in my opinion, this is all my opinion, that people that that becomes the way that they appropriate an adoration of where Jesus came from. Just as Jesus came from Mary, the physical body of Mary, birthed the person of Jesus, the body of Jesus, the baby Jesus, if you will, dear baby Jesus, uh, I've heard often prayed to. So the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, give us Jesus. So if you want to know where Jesus came from, if you're a Protestant evangelical, you point to the Jewish people. If you're a Roman Catholic or a Catholic-minded Christian, you point to the person of Mary and you say, I want to adore and venerate her. If you're an evangelical Protestant, you say, where did Jesus come from? Jesus came from the Jewish people, and I'm going to venerate and adore the Jewish people. And and we do that, and evangelical Protestants have done this by adoring the the nation of Israel, the political entity of the modern nation-state of Israel. I realize this is hugely controversial among evangelicals today, but I think you will find um, politically uh, an opinion among most evangelical Christians that Israel, what Israel does as a nation state is usually and almost exclusively correct and moral, no matter what the decision is, no matter what has happened. And I would say this comes from that split that happened in the Reformation where they took that archetype of who gave us Jesus, the source of Jesus, and venerated it and adored it so much that now Israel, the nation, modern nation state, can do no wrong. I grew up uh, going on tours to Israel. My uh, parents were involved in that. And many of the churches that I grew up near and was involved with would go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And the Protestant pilgrimages to the Holy Land are very different from what Catholics do in the Holy Land. Catholics are going to walk the Via Della Rosa, maybe carrying a cross. They're going to light candles in the churches. They're going to pray at certain 
very Catholic and Orthodox holy sites that are very religious. There's smoke, there's incense, there's candles, there's priests in robes walking around. And when Catholics go to the Holy Land and Orthodox go, they go to these sites. When Protestants go to the Holy Land, they often do go to those sites, and we did. I've been there, tour groups. They do, but the real sites they want to go to are places like the Garden Tomb, which is a very evangelical uh, place claiming to be one of maybe the tomb where Jesus was resurrected from. They go to other outdoor places that look very much like the place where the events of Jesus' life happen. And they do what evangelicals do. They, they pray, they sing, and they preach um, about Jesus' life and what happened on that spot. And even the stories of the Old Testament, whereas the veneration of Mary happens uh, for Catholic tourists at those holy sites, but the veneration of Israel happens uh, for the evangelicals. And there's always a, a component of political indoctrination that comes from the Israeli tour guides that will will tell the story of the nation state of Israel in a way that that indicates that, yes, there are struggles and difficulties, but Israel's always going to be right. And that message resonates with many evangelical Christians. So when they come home, they come home not just with an appreciation for the historical things that happened in Israel 2,000 years ago and, and earlier, and not just an appreciation for uh, how they have felt closer to Jesus by walking on the very land that he walked in, but they also come back with an adoration for the nation state of Israel, which plays out in every political survey that you find among evangelicals that Israel is always going to be an exceptional exceptionalist. There's going to be an exceptionalist view of Israel. And again, here I am not judging or saying either of those views are right or wrong. I certainly think some really weird stuff can happen with Mary in Roman Catholicism, um, where for, for some folks, I, you know, I've really never observed this up close. They, they may kind of crowd God out to the side and just focus on Mary and, and maybe that line of worship versus adoration gets crossed. Maybe there's ways that Roman Catholics are going to, to, um, to, uh, go, maybe not, I don't like to use these words going too far, but maybe there's a way that, um, their adoration of Mary cannot help them spiritually and help other people spiritually. They may neglect certain uh, human traits of Mary that we find in Holy Scripture, where she and Jesus have a little argument, where she wants to see Jesus, and Jesus gives her the Heisman, the stiff arm, and says, these are my mother and my brothers. There are these moments in Mary's and Jesus' life in Scripture that are really powerful and very human, and we kind of feel who Mary is in these moments, and especially in the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, uh, where she talks about the political upheaval that is happening in her own life, in her own body. And so um, there may be ways that in a, a, those that adore Mary to, an, to this degree may find that they lose the human element of Mary. That's sort of my hunch as maybe a downside to that. On the other hand, uh, the evangelical Protestant view and sublimation of Mary into the nation state of Israel, I think can really do some damage to real people 
that live in the nation state of Israel and live in the Palestinian territories. Uh, all you need to do is read and listen to Palestinian Arabs, Palestinian Arab Christians, Palestinian Arab Muslims, and Palestinians. And as they talk about the modern nation state of Israel, as they understand it, the reality is very different from what we, what you will hear from a tour guide in when you visit the, the Holy Land. And so I think that um, adoring the nation state of Israel and feeling that the na- modern nation state of Israel can do no wrong is a very unhealthy view for Christians to have these days or really any day. Because what's done is done. Uh, the Zionist movement, both the evangelical Christian movement and the Zionist Jewish movement uh, accomplished their objectives in, in many ways, and the history is done, and I'm not trying to unravel that history in any way. Uh, but I think that just as um, we can lose the human Mary in, uh, in our adoration of Mary, the God-bearer, the Theotokos, the mother of God, we can also lose Mary by, uh, by, seeing, by losing her and only seeing the modern nation-state of Israel as the only way to to uh, be thankful for how we how Christians got Jesus. So I know it's a little complicated thesis. If you have questions, please ask me. I'd love to talk to you about this in the coming days. But that's just my hunch about how both Protestants and Roman Catholics understand Mary. Again, these things are very deep in our psyche. We're talking about archetypes uh, that sort of overshadow our thinking in ways that we're not always aware of. And yet, I've noticed this in my life as I've moved from being a much more fundamentalist Protestant evangelical to being a more Catholic Christian, as I've understood that in the Episcopal Church. So thanks for listening, and I wish you well as you ponder what you will believe about these questions of who is Mary. And I know I already signed off, but I promised you something at the beginning that when I went back to listen to the episode, I realized I hadn't delivered upon. Mary appeared to me on the side of a hill about 10 years ago. And she was, of course, depicted in a statue in front of a a small little white uh, paneled church that was in Stillicum, Washington. And I was living there and it was during the days where I was going through a divorce. And uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't know about divorce until they've maybe gone through a divorce is that it takes a really long time. And there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of hopes that are shattered and then hopes that are rekindled and all sorts of emotions and fears and anxieties. And I was right in the middle of that and right in the middle of that that whole year. And when I would go running, this is when I started running in a very serious way. I'd go running up this very steep hill, up the side of the hill, and there was this little church, and I would stop there often on the way back, and I would walk up there during other times at night especially. And I would just sit there with a statue of Mary because I knew that if there was anyone out there who understood what it's like to go through what I was going through, it was Mary because I couldn't make sense of it. I felt like I was out of my depth. I felt like I needed to ponder these things in my heart 
just like Mary did, and I couldn't do it without her help. And so there, I as I as I started to show up for Mary, Mary started to show up for me. And as Mary always does, Mary always brings Jesus with her. Mary brought Jesus with her to me that year as I struggled and hoped and pondered and agonized over what what I was going through. And I hope that Mary can show up for you too, because Mary will always bring Jesus with her. So that's my final word, and that's my story that as I experienced it, and I wish that you will find similar comfort in the arms of Mary, just as Jesus did for the first years of his life.